0: Today we are turning to the Gospel of Mark for our scripture reading this morning and it's Mark chapter 11 and reading verses 1 to 11. Today, as you know, of course, is Palm Sunday and, of course, we come to the story of the triumphal entry. Mark 11 at verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you doing this, tell him, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing, untying that colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the roads, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. I think for most of us who come across an experience we haven't encountered before, we are quite naturally full of questions. Recently I heard of a five-year-old who attended her first wedding. And of course in the middle of the service, she was asking her mom all sorts of questions. And of course her mom lifted her up and began to explain to her all that was going on. And she would say to her, Now, over there is Nana and Papa. And the five-year-old recognized them immediately, of course, and she smiled and nodded. And there are some of her cousins. And she began to tell who was there and what was happening. Then the five-year-old said, Mommy, why is that lady dressed in white? And Mommy said, well isn't she beautiful? She is the bride. And today is her special day, and she can't wait to be married. And she wears a beautiful white dress to feel lovely and beautiful. And do you see her smiling? And the five-year-old nodded. And then she said, "'Mummy, why is that man wearing black?' That's the kind of thing a five-year-old would say. They would want to know all the questions. And of course, it's humorous because we can add up all the things in our own minds. But when you come across a new experience, that's exactly what happens. You ask all sorts of questions to understand everything that's going on. And today, Palm Sunday begins for us Holy Week. And when you are five and six and seven years old, you, of course, are fascinated with having a young choir at the front, waving branches. And, of course, you want to know. And your focus is on the palm branches and on the donkey and on the crowd and the noise and the celebration. And, of course, you begin to wonder why are they crying, Hosanna, Hosanna? And, Mum and Dad and grandparents, we explain to our children and our grandchildren. And then, of course, comes the question, are these the same people who in a few days' time called crucify him, crucify him? That's a good question. And this morning, as we come to study Mark's gospel, I want to do with you what we often do on a Sunday morning. We look at the contextual, the historical backdrop. We look at what has led up to this event. And of course, we look at the event itself. Now, one of the difficulties for us this morning is this. We have two difficulties. Number one, we know the story of Palm Sunday so well that the temptation is to think there's nothing fresh or new here. And the other difficulty is this. Last Sunday morning, we finished our most recent series of studies in the book of Romans. And so we're kind of plunging ourselves into the deep end by coming to Mark 11, because we tend to forget all that has led up to Palm Sunday. If you are familiar with Mark's gospel or you've been reading it privately on your own, you will know what Donald English, a New Testament scholar, said of Mark. He said this, Mark portrays Christ as an active energetic, swiftly moving, warring, conquering king, a victor over the destructive forces of nature and demons and death. And that's exactly what has happened in Mark's gospel up to chapter 11. When you dig deeply into Mark, you discover fairly quickly that there are a number of hidden characteristics that you don't immediately identify with or at least recognize at a casual reading. And for the first eight chapters, Mark has portrayed one miracle after another, after another, after another, and each of these miracles point to the identity of Christ. Mark chapter 1, you hear those wonderful words at his baptism when God Himself says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The opening chapter. And of course, as you're reading Mark, you're thinking, Wow, God is saying this of Christ? Then in chapter 2 you have that spectacular event where Jesus is sitting in a very crowded room and the ceiling is broken open and a paralytic is lowered and Jesus forgives the man's sins and then restores him to full health and the Pharisees and Sadducees and the teachers of the law are there whispering to each other, who does this man think he is to forgive sins? And the question of Jesus' identity comes up a second time. And then you have it again in chapters 4 and 5 and 6, particularly in chapter 4, where Jesus conducts a miracle and the disciples look at each other and say, even the winds and the waves obey him. And from chapters 1 through chapter 8, all that takes place points to the identity of Christ. But after chapter 8, there is a subtle change takes place. It's not the miracles that dominate in Mark's gospel, but it's the teaching of Jesus. And all of that gives you a sense of anticipation and expectation. And Mark has lots of little sentences and phrases which point towards Jesus being on a journey. And Mark delights to write, and then Jesus went to Jericho. And then they journeyed towards Capernaum. And then... One of Mark's favorite sayings, and you have this sense that a climax is coming, that Jesus is actively involved in doing something rather than something being done to him. And now we come to Mark 11. If you are a reader of historical or political or just general biographies, you will know that usually the death of someone takes up the last few pages and on average it's somewhere between 7 and 9% of a biography focus on the person's death. But not in the Gospels. In each of the Gospels, more than 30% are given to the final days of Jesus And that's exactly what Mark does. As we move into chapter 11, there is a sense of expectation. There's a sense that a climax is coming. Something extraordinary is about to take place because he's been heading towards Jerusalem chapter after chapter. And so when we come to 11 verse 1, we read, As they approached Jerusalem. And you get a sense that something is about to take place. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell them, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. In Jerusalem at Passover time, there were as many as a million people present. There was a holiday atmosphere. Pilgrims were preparing for the Passover. The Passover, of course, was looking back to the time when God brought the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Festivals, celebrations, family meals, all of that was going on. Jesus stayed over in Bethpage and Bethany with Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And that was a close tight family whom Jesus knew well. And we tend not to think of families that Jesus had a sleepover with. And that's exactly what happened here. He knew them well. They were some of his closest friends. And he was about to spend several nights with them during this holy week. And as the story unfolds, not only does Jesus ask for the donkey, and that's one of our problems. The problem is we focus on the donkey and the palms, as we said earlier, but there's so much more going on here. And as the donkey was used, what unfolds next is this. That worship takes place. Do you see that? Notice what happens. Verse 8 excuse me, verse 7, when they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it, and many people spread their cloaks on the road, and while others spread branches they had cut in the fields, those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Some of the folks that Sunday morning were excuse me, Uh, yeah, it probably was a Sunday morning, they would realize that in front of them was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 9. Behold, your king comes riding on a donkey. And some of them got it. They understood what was happening Here was God bringing to pass His eternal purpose and plan. That His salvation was coming to Jerusalem. That here was the Messiah whom they had hoped for and longed for. And at last He had come. And some of them got it. And I suspect others there in the crowd were thinking, what's going on? They knew something of Jesus and they participated in all that was going on. And they worshipped. Let me pause for a second and say this. Sometimes the temptation for us when it comes to worship is to feel a little unsettled, a little uncomfortable, perhaps even a little embarrassed. And it usually happens not when we see children leading in worship, we always enjoy that and think how wonderful it is, and it is. But if you're here this morning and the person sitting next to you during the hymns we were singing moments ago was singing at the top of his or her voice, engaged, fully engaged, the temptation is to become ugh, a little embarrassed. Last Friday evening, uh, My son Michael and I went to see the Harlem Globetrotters. And if you've been to see the Harlem Globetrotters, it was a whole new experience for us. And they were highly entertaining, lots of fun. And before even the basketball game started, there was an MC at the front and he was uh, highly entertaining and would bring children out. And there was just laughter and music and joy. And then they brought some adults out and they put on uh, music and asked the adults to dance. And the adults fully entered into it and... They started pretty slowly, and then one of the men, he quickly discovered he was the man with the moves. And not only was he dancing, he really started doing the whole thing. And then his hand went on his hip, and he started going like this. And It just is the kind of thing you would never find me doing, but he was doing it right there. (laughs) And just fully entering into it, and people were applauding and shouting, and of course on came the mascots, and the referees were messing around, they were throwing water on uh, the crowd, and all sorts. of, just a huge big event, and everyone was joining in. Not a single soul was embarrassed. It was just fun. They were relaxing. Go to a football game. The man in front of you is standing up, shouting at the referee, and others are, oh, and others are clapping and singing and joining. But when it comes to worship, a little more reserved, a little more, oh, not so sure. We're just that little bit sensitive about displaying emotion. On a Sunday morning, when we gather for worship, As a pastor, I work with John and we look at hymns and readings so there is particular themes running through the morning service. And We always choose hymns that tie in with the passage and we choose hymns that you can participate in. Worship is not a spectator sport. We don't gather and watch the choir sing. The choir lead us in worship. They enable and encourage us to lift our hearts and minds and voices to heaven in adoration and praise. And in those moments of worship we are caught up with the majesty and the grandeur and the greatness of God. And this is a place not to be a spectator, not to stand back and watch, but to participate, to give thanks and praise to the living God. That's what happens when we gather on Sunday morning. Is it joyful? Should it have a note of rejoicing in there? Absolutely it should. And we see it right here on that Palm Sunday morning when a number of the disciples and the others, I imagine most of the disciples understood what was taking place, And they were able to say, At last, the Messiah has come. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Thankful, rejoicing. Marva J. Dawn has written several books on worship. my favorite quote from her when it comes to worship is this. She writes, I yearn for worship that will demand of me the strongest discipline, the most creative imagination, the most passionate emotion, the highest intellect, and the most rigorous will, in short, genuine adoration of God. That's worship. So let me ask one more question before we move further on in the passage. And it's this. When was the last time on a Sunday morning when we gathered corporately for worship? You opened up the hymn book, perhaps one of your favorite hymns, and your heart and mind soared heavenward. And you discovered yourself immediately in the presence of the living God. The people around you, you were oblivious of. No more conscious of them than you were of the building that you're in. But your focus was on Him alone. That's why we have Palm Sunday beginning Holy Week. That's why the challenge for us today is this that as we move into Holy Week, where will your heart and mind and soul be this week? Lost in worship, wonder and praise? That's what's going on here. A heart and mind to be lost in Him. And here's the beauty of it. Once you have a taste of genuine worship, You will never want mentally to go back to just singing. You will always seek after that experience of engaging and bringing adoration and praise to him. That's what's going on. And then the story develops further. Notice what comes next. Verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple, a place of worship. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now what would Jesus see when he went into the temple that late afternoon, early evening on the Sunday? As he entered through one of the main gates, he would come to what is called the courts of the Gentiles. It was 172 square acres. It was the size, in fact, it's more than that. Let me get it absolutely accurate for you. I don't want to give you false information. It was 172,000 square acres. That's the proximity of 35 football fields. This is a huge area. And because it was Passover, and almost a million people would be in Jerusalem, there in the courts of the Gentiles, would be a market. And it was a religious market. And it was a religious market in this sense, that people coming from North Africa, or what we understand as modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor back then, would be traveling to Jerusalem to offer up a sacrifice at the feast of the Passover, join with family and friends for a Passover meal, and then worship. And they would go to the temple during that period probably five six days in jerusalem and rather than bring a calf or a goat or some doves from north africa or asia minor they would simply buy them at the temple and they bought them at the temple because they knew that the rabbis in the temple courts would select the different animals for sacrifice so there was no mark or difficulty in other words they were selecting the best to be sold in the temple And of course, as the pilgrims put their hand in their pocket and counted out some coins, if the coin had the head of the Roman emperor on it, it would not be acceptable there in the temple. And so they had to exchange local money from Asia Minor, Africa, or other parts around the Mediterranean basin. They would change it to Jewish money to use in the temple. And then they would go and buy their animals. Now, have you any sense of the number of animals that would be required, thousands upon thousands. The stench would be awful. The money changers were very much involved in corruption. Radical capitalism was going on. People were demanding huge exchange rates for local currency and so on. And of course the buying of the animals, the prices would go up as well. And in the midst of all of this, when Jesus came that Sunday afternoon, looking around, seeing all of this, Mark's Gospel tells us that the next day he cleansed the temple. Why? Because he understood this, that a temple should be a place for worship. A place where there is an all-pervasive cry from within the heart for holiness in our thinking and in our lifestyle. Cleansing of our moral life. Passionate longing for God. A heart focused on prayer. That's what was going on in the mind of Jesus. And as he entered the temple area, the very opposite was the case. And it was all about the external. And it had become corrupt and artificial and had nothing to do with holiness and righteousness or worship or a heart passion for the living God. It was all about the artificial and the external. And no wonder Jesus looked at it and sought to cleanse the temple. He understood what worship was he understood what holiness meant he longed for others to see it and he was sick to the bottom of his stomach with all that was going on no wonder he cleansed the temple so here is the challenge for us this week In the midst of all of our busyness. Coming to the end of spring break for some. Looking towards the holidays and the festivities of Easter weekend. Looking forward to having family and friends with us. The challenge this week is to do what? Is to rise above all of that. Enjoy it by all means. Participate in it. Be active in it all. But remember, what is truly at the heart of the celebration is Easter and the death of Christ and his longing that we might know salvation for ourselves and have the opportunity of worship and praise and adoration with God himself that we might be lost this week in wonder and love of praise of Him. That's where our focus should be. That's why Mark has built up and built up and built up to this point because that's the cry for this week. And we will find it so hard with all the other things going on, pull away from the artificial, pull away from the ceremonial for a while, the external, and take time this week to begin in Mark 11 and work your way through all that is coming. Then our focus will no longer be on palm branches and donkeys and the crowd and the children, but it will be on Christ, his love for humanity, his death on the cross. He will then take the place of honor in our lives and in our hearts and souls and minds and in our homes. when he is at the center, we will want to be involved in active worship of the living God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this incredible passage of Scripture. Thank you that it calls us back again to worship. It calls us back to heartfelt authenticity and credibility. It calls us back to prayer and to put you in that place of honor in our lives. Father, for all of the joy of the festivities of this week moving towards next weekend, help us please, O God, to be focused on you, the living God. Father, thank you for all that we have learned this morning. Enable us, please, to be yours for we ask it in and through the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.